0: This week's TribCast is sponsored by Raise Your Hand Texas is strengthening public education for the future because the future of Texas is in our public schools. More at raiseyourhandtexas.org and the Texas A&M University System. Scientists at Bush School talk with Texas A&M System Chancellor John Sharp about COVID-19 and the ignored lessons of SARS, MERS, H1N1, and Ebola. Learn more on texastribune.org.
1: Hello, and welcome to the April 15th edition of the Texas Tribune Tripcast. This is Alexa Uda. We've taken a break from our roundtable discussions for a few weeks as we navigated our new normal under the circumstances brought on by the coronavirus, but I'm very happy to be joined remotely this week by state politics reporter Cassie Pollock. Hello. Managing editor Matthew Watkins.
2: Hello from my closet.
1: And executive editor Ross Ramsey.
2: Howdy, I have the weirdest
3: sense of deja vu right now. Like, we, like, like we'd already taped this once.
1: This, this is the second time we're doing this today. Um, as many other folks are trying to figure out how to do stuff remotely. So. I, for
2: one, am happy for a second chance. Really I'm
1: I fun. am happy for a second chance to see you in your closet again.
3: <laughs> <laughs> He's hiding from his children.
1: <laughs> that's that's true. that's true. That's probably what it's more like. Um, all right. Well, the last time a group of us sat down together, we were, you know, just starting to parse through the state's reaction to this growing coronavirus outbreak, including the lack of widespread testing. That's ramped up quite a bit since then. We know of more than 14,600 cases in nearly 200 counties. That number's probably changing as we sit here. Um, And in the last week, we've heard Governor Greg Abbott kind of strike a tentatively optimistic tone given the declining rate at which the number of Texas cases are doubling. But we also know that numbers, you know, are very, very, very much so an undercount because of the ongoing lack of widespread testing. So let's start there, you know, what do we make of this tone, particularly given that we know it's based on, you know, woefully incomplete data?
2: Yeah, I think we've we've seen kind of the shift of tone in the last week or so. And it's not just from Abbott, it's from uh, John Zerwas, who's uh, helping with the response, uh, Dr. Hellerstedt, and, you know, some of the other people who are kind of leading this response for the state of Texas. And, you know, it's definitely not like a we're we're in the clear or anything like that. It's more of a a statement of some of the numbers that we've been tracking are looking a little better than they were before. The number one thing that they've kind of really kind of uh, glammed onto is the, the doubling rate. You know, uh, the number of confirmed cases has been, uh, was doubling uh, every three days or so early in this process. That's expanded to every week or so, every six days or so. Um, state officials say that, see that as a sign that social d- distancing is working. You know, the, Huge kind of caveat to that, as you mentioned, uh, Alexa, is that um, we still have quite limited testing to you know, compared to what we would need to get a true sense of what this virus is like in the community. Um, Right now, you know, because of the limited testing, they're really only testing people who have you know, symptoms or uh, some reason to test. And if you're really going to get a true measure of this, we of course know that the virus is um, some people can have it without symptoms, and some people can have you know, only minor symptoms. So you would have to do much more widespread testing to know what the true sense is. That being said, I think part of the reason for the optimism is because while you can't really say with confidence what, how many people in the community have it right now, what you can say with confidence is that the hospitals at this point have not been overrun as they have in other communities. I mean, you look at places like New Orleans, New York City, where, you know, there's, uh, they're really kind of having to reach panics about the availability of uh, respirators there is cases of you know refrigerator trucks being backed up to hospitals because they didn't have enough places to put all the bodies that we can say with quite a bit of confidence is not happening here you know at least for now and we're seeing some optimism that maybe we have done enough social distancing that that's not an imminent threat at this moment
3: one of the problems here is that you know if you're doing the social distancing right the reward is nothing happens. And, you know, you can get a sense of complacency from that. And, you know, not so much uh, the the leadership, you know, as the public, you know, hey, nothing's happening, I guess it's okay to go out again. And then you sort of blow the deal. So, you know, I think they're balancing as they decide what to open and when to open it, you know, how much you can open things without causing a resurgence of these numbers.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the, the focus on the hospital numbers uh, emerging as kind of a, a pivotal factor in this is something that you're hearing both from, you know, state officials in these briefings, but also from local officials. Harris County Judge Lena Hidalgo in, in a conversation with us, gosh, two weeks ago, maybe at this point, you know, she very quickly said that's what we're going off of. But I, I think also you have to kind of think about, if that number itself is also an undercount, when you think about the number of uninsured people in Texas, the number of poor people in Texas who, you know, can't afford to do an emergency room run, even in kind of the worst-case scenario circumstances, and, you know, people that are undocumented and are not going to show up to a public facility of that sort or people who are in mixed-status families. So I think there there is also an extent to which that number itself could be an undercount. And we just don't know, you know, just because of the nature of our population. But I mean, I do think that the idea of reopening the economy, you know, there have been some Texas lawmakers who are a bit more optimistic or, you know, seemingly wanting to get to that reopening much sooner. Cassie, what did we hear this week from some of the more hardline conservative members of the legislature?
4: Yeah, you've definitely started seeing kind of a trickle uh, of hardline conservatives, you know, starting probably yesterday and maybe over the weekend, just start to call an Abbott and ask him to loosen or relax or, uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, get rid of his statewide executive order that was effectively a stay-at-home order. They say that Texans need to be back to work, that, you know, we need to start restarting the economy. Uh, you know two separate house members uh both members of the the freedom caucus uh sent Abbott a, a letter uh you know over the past couple of days, Matt Krauss and Mike Lang with suggestions recommendations for how to go about opening the economy and then just the entire House Freedom caucus you know I think it's like eleven maybe twelve members at this point signed on to a letter uh you know just formally asking that Abbott uh you know think about or consider doing so um you've seen a few other uh you know m- Republicans affiliated with that crowd also come out and call on Abbott uh, to start putting Texans back to work. Um, I'm not sure, you know, at the end of the day, what kind of an impact those calls, um, you know, have on the governor and what next steps he plans to take. I know that he's, you know, said that there is an announcement coming on his end from his office at some point this week uh, regarding that. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's just, you know, all part of, uh, you know, their uh, their stance at this point.
1: Yeah, I mean I do think it uh all of a sudden feels like 2017 again during the bathroom bill fight where you've got, you know, the House Freedom Caucus much more aligned with the leader of the other chamber, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who a few weeks ago was making some pretty out there comments about elderly people sacrificing themselves for the economy. Uh, You know, we've written about the extent to which we've seen Abbott caught between local officials and the president in responding to this. Do we think the pull of the right wing of the party has played into this at all? Are we maybe seeing the beginnings of kind of a more organized effort to publicly pressure the governor on that front and within those sort of factions of the party?
2: Yeah, I mean, we had an article on our site uh, a couple weeks ago written by our two other politics reporters, uh, Patrick and uh, Alex, that um, really kind of hit home that how Abbott is kind of trying to bridge the divide between the local officials, many of whom are Democrats, um, public health officials who, you know, were urging dramatic action, and the folks like uh, Dan Patrick, um, even Trump at times, who were, you know, more skeptical of this, more, eager to kind of get the economy rolling and things like that, you know, in the, that a lot of times when we first observed that it was around the uh, stay at home orders and is Abbott going to issue one and things like that. And and what we saw Abbott do was he ended up issuing an order um, and the substance of the order seemed a lot more closely aligned with what those local officials, the health officials were asking for, but the way he talked about it was a little bit different and he, um, you know, he didn't want to call it a stay at home order, um, things like that. Um, so, you know, what the rules that Texas is under right now kind of mirror a lot of what you're seeing in a lot of other states. Um, it's the kind of the rhetoric that's different, although that rhetoric can matter because the way you talk about these orders, especially since they're not really being enforced by law enforcement, can affect kind of compliance and how seriously people take them. You know, looking forward toward opening the economy, like uh, as Cassie said, they're going to be... Uh, you know, issuing some kind of order this week that's kind of laying out the groundwork from that. Uh, we don't know exactly what that order is going to say. Um, it sounds like it might come down on Friday. Um, but the hints that Abbott has dropped is that, you know, he has made clear to us that this is going to be a slow process. You know, I, I don't think anyone is expecting at this point you know, avid to come out on Friday and be like, social distancing is over. It's a little bit more of like, he talked about building kind of a team that will kind of look at some of these questions. Um, And there's a lot of questions that we still have, testing being one of the key ones, right? Um, Do we have enough testing right now to be able to kind of monitor the virus um, in a world where people are out and about in Texas? At this point, we don't. And those are some of the questions that they're going to kind of have to figure out going forward.
3: Yeah, they're trying to balance, you know, economic concerns with public health concerns with civil liberties concerns. You know, how much can we order people to stay in their houses? How much do we punish them if we catch them outside without a mask on? You know, on one hand, you know, what do the numbers look like for public health? Are people really in danger? Is that what we're most worried about? And what's going on with the economy? And you know, at at some level, any answer you make at a given time is gonna be wrong to somebody else. And you know, what Abbott's hearing from now are the people who are Most concerned at the moment about the economy. What he's been paying attention to up to this point, you know, I think, you know, before the Freedom Caucus reared its head, it was probably the public health authorities. And the people around him are not, um, at the moment, you know, who are showing up at those press conferences are doctors and public health people and not uh, business leaders. So I think that's where his head is right now.
2: Yeah. yeah, he's he's very clearly trying not to pick a fight with either side, though. You know, right. um, you saw the this Trump pronouncement earlier this week that he kind of walked back later about like, I'm the one who decides these things, not the states. And Abbott, uh, very clearly, he was given the opportunity at a press conference to kind of push back at that. You know, we all know him as kind of the federalism guy, the guy who sues the federal government for its overreaches, you know, and he he was basically like. Uh, you know, we're in constant communication with the White House, with the vice president, the president, you know, various other people. Um, But he also just kind of in his actions has made pretty clear that he sees this as his decision, that that he's not necessarily just waiting to take orders from Trump about how this is all gonna go down.
3: Right.
1: But I do wanna get into how this sort of ongoing ordeal has actually served to underscore the state versus local tension that we've been reporting on for a few years and has really kind of flipped it on its head, right? Like you had Abbott... At first, heavily deferring to local decision making, even applauding local officials to get out way ahead of him. Now, the hardline conservatives are asking him to lift the statewide stay at home order and you know just leave enough room for locals to decide local policies. Do we think that this is the sort of thing that you know we'll be back to business as usual when this is all over? You know, does this become a calling card during the next legislative session where people keep pointing to this in what becomes the next sort of fight over state versus local control? what do we think we're kind of facing you know, on the other end of this
3: you know i think the i think we're going to have the same fight you know the um the battle between the you know the people that want the state to be kind of the preeminent and the locals want to be the preeminent has been going for probably four sessions now in some form mm-hmm. or fashion uh, it goes you know back to plastic bag bans and and you know, ride shares goes all the way through property taxes. Last session, I think property taxes will be back next session. Um, I think in a lot of these uh, fights, you know, you you see, um, or in a lot of what's happening right now, you see the points that were made in those debates being made again. There's two organizations, for example, the Texas Municipal League and the Texas Association of Counties, and these are basically trade associations for cities and counties, and they've been fielding a lot of the information uh, as those local um, officials decide what to do in response to coronavirus, you know, and the the responses have been all all across the board, just like they have been with school districts, but they're all comparing notes, and they're comparing notes through their trade association, and those are the associations that were under attack last session, for example, with the legislation that would have outlawed taxpayer-paid lobbying. Those groups lobby on behalf of the cities. The cities pay them out of taxpayer funds. Uh, some conservatives don't like that. It was a uh, kind of a uh, singular issue last session. Lieutenant Governor was big on it. I think it's probably going to be back, regardless of what happens with the coronavirus and, and, the, and the way we sort of walk through this minefield.
2: Yeah, you know, I think uh, Governor Abbott in particular has um, really shown that he has a different approach in the middle of a crisis than he does just kind of in, I guess what you would call, quote unquote, like peacetime, right? And (laughs) Abbott has a lot of experience dealing with crises since he's been governor, whether it's Hurricane Harvey or a series of shootings or, you know, um, flooding across the state, natural disasters and things like that, This, this perhaps being the biggest one he's experienced, but you know, when something major happens, he kind of brings people together. He's, he's not looking to pick a fight with folks, um, wants to be kind of seen as like there's you know, give the impression that there's an adult kind of handling these things. You know, when there's, when there's not a crisis, he's much more willing to pick those fights. He's, he's willing to kind of, you know, go after Steve Adler on Twitter and, and the various other kind of types of things he's doing. And right now we're seeing kind of crisis Abbott. Um, but you know, If we ever get back to normal times, hopefully, you know, and whether that's during the next legislative session or whenever, you know, I I don't see any reason to think that he wouldn't be, you know, picking those fights again in the future or engaging in those fights. I guess he would maybe argue he's not the one picking them.
1: Well, okay, so we're going to do a bit more forecasting for the next legislative session. But before that, we've got two more sponsors we've got to go to.
0: Texas State Technical College is the solution to the skills gap in Texas. Find out more at tstc.edu. And Texas Farm Bureau. Get resources and information related to the coronavirus pandemic on Texas Farm Bureau's COVID-19 resource page. More at txfb.us.
1: So obviously, we've got quite a bit of ways to go before the 87th legislature is gobbled in in January. But the landscape of what the next legislature legislative session will look like, is starting to fill in on several fronts. Let's start with the budget. How bad is this fight going to get in light of what we're seeing now?
3: The budget stinks. You know, the controller says that he's going to give the legislature a new, revised, smaller estimate of the revenue that they're bringing in in July. Ordinarily, he would wait until the beginning of the session in January, uh, but things are cascading so quickly that he wants to give them some idea of what they're walking into so that they can start to tamp down spending in the agencies now, even before the session begins. When they get into the session, they're going to have several billion dollars less, he believes. He hadn't put a number on it yet, but he did say several billion dollars, less than they thought they were going to have. And you can't cut very far into the Texas budget without getting to public education and health and human services. Those are the two biggest things in the budget. And there's still a lot of, lot to be determined there. You know, how much money Can you cut, you know, how much money do you save, quote unquote, not running schools right now? How much money do you spend on health and human services you wouldn't otherwise have spent because you've got a pandemic running? They're going to have to sort all of that out, but they're going to have less money and they're going to have a real budget crunch. And you can argue they were going to have a real budget crunch anyway due to the commitments that they promised or the commitments that they made last year on public school and public education.
1: Yeah, Cassie, what's some of the early chatter that you're hearing among lawmakers about what they see, you know, as some of the biggest challenges ahead out of this, either tied to the budget or beyond it?
4: Yeah, I mean Ross said, you know, public education last session, uh you know, the legislature passed HB3. uh, And, you know, on the last day uh, of session, you had, you know, the speaker saying that uh, a lot of work was going to have to be done during the interim uh, to try to figure out how to continue uh, that funding, uh, you know, down the line. And, uh, you know, so I think that that's something that's weighing on a lot of these uh, lawmakers' minds. Uh, minds. Um, Another thing that, you know, just kind of keeps coming up in conversations is, uh, related to the property tax bill that the legislature also passed last year and you know, that property tax bill lowered the rollback rate for cities and counties from eight percent to three point five percent but there's a provision in it uh, that basically says that if a disaster declaration is is issued uh, that you can effectively push back that rollback rate and you know um, disaster isn't like specifically defined in that bill uh, so it's a little bit um, I think like the leg, the legality of it is a little bit unclear right now. You know, Abbott's been asked about it a couple of times. Has deferred, uh, you know, to his uh, you know legal office and said you know that he'll look into it. Um, but you know that kind of also goes back to the to the local control fight that we've been talking about too. Is will these cities and counties after you know in in the aftermath as they begin the recovery process of this pandemic, will they have the you know quote unquote breathing room to in their budgets to be able to you know either pay back or pay for, you know, what have you, uh, under that 8% rollback rate, uh, or will they be constrained, uh, to the new, to the newer rollback rate of 3.5%.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that the interruptions to interim work and considerations that would normally happen in the interim as people prepare to kind of take on the fights. of the legislative session have been interrupted in ways that I don't know that they ever have before. Like we've had disasters in the interim and before legislative sessions, thinking of like Hurricane Harvey, but those are not things that have stopped people from being able to meet and game plan and you know to have public hearings across the state or at the Capitol. And I think you know one of the other things that we've been talking about is how, you know, thinking about where this is gonna be in the fall or even in January. How do we prepare to even have a legislative session that complies with social distancing <laughs> guidelines How you? Do you put House members up on the, in the House gallery so that they're not sitting next to each other anymore and, you know, therefore also can no longer vote for each other when they're back in their offices or out to lunch with someone? You know, the, the idea of, like, we're getting into a legislative session that's going to be different in so many ways, but it also might just, like, logistically have to
4: roll out differently, right? Yeah, I mean, that's also something that's, you know, I don't know if it's at the forefront of their minds yet, but uh, certainly on their minds in some capacity where, you know, whether this virus is still here in the way that it is, or if it comes back in a second, you know, or third wave by the time that the legislature convenes. I mean, how would you even go about having some sort of virtual, uh, you know convening of the house and the senate or committee hearings i mean are we all reverting to zoom like what's the protocol even for doing such a thing so um i bet that those conversations are going to continue to play out and i wouldn't be surprised if you see some of that conversation move to the you know to the public sphere here before long especially as we you know continue to talk about the economy and, and you know everything else
3: we can see if we can get a Zoom app that lets us have 150 little squares on that one giant TV screen somewhere.
1: I'm trying to think of the IT requirements to help everyone get online. <sighs>
3: you know, there, there are probably, probably online? at any given time, there are probably 25 members of the Texas legislature who just probably can't figure this out. Just not. I mean, they're perfectly good people, smart guys and all of that, but they just don't have the technological skills to get online. I. I I think it would just be a wreck. And so if you can't get online, you know, the whole deal about, you know, every once in a while they say, my machine malfunctioned and I couldn't vote. Right. It has a whole new aspect to it. My dog tore the Ethernet cable out of the wall. You know, sorry. Yeah. Could a it bunch vote of people have Spotty Wi-Fi
2: as long as, as soon as there's a tough vote, you know, up right. there. Like, oh.
1: <laughs> Darn. It'll be when you take the walk during a hard
2: time. Yeah. yeah. Restarting yeah. my router. That's right.
1: <laughs> so we obviously cannot get together and talk about this and forecast the next legislative session without thinking about redistricting my one of my favorite topics to talk about that, you know, what is now one of the newest wrinkles in all of this now that there is a possibility that redistricting could be delayed when lawmakers come back in 2021. You know, as part of this bid to extend census counting because of all of these coronavirus related holdups. The Trump administration has said it's going to ask Congress for approval to delay reapportionment counts and the distribution of redistricting data by four months. So basically that puts it out after the end of the regular legislative session. So that gets us into a special session window, raises all sorts of questions of constitutional requirements. I mean, first of all, who saw that coming? And (laughs) second of all, I think this changes the dynamic of the legislative session but I want to ask y'all first how you see it changing the dynamic of the next session.
2: I think it makes a even what was already going to be a crazy chaotic messy session even potentially even more crazy chaotic and messy. I mean, you know, there's already so much uncertainty going in, you know, and we have to have an election before we even get to the session and you know, the Democrats are trying to retake the house and You know, there's just and then there's going to be this budget. And then if there's, you know, a question of, like, can we even do redistricting on top of that? It just becomes, you know, just just kind of (laughs) nuts.
1: Your face is saying so much to me right now, Matthew, even though our readers can't see it. I mean, I, I do think one of the things, you know, redistricting did open up for Democrats, whether they take back the House or at a minimum, close the margin there, it did offer them kind of an opening to be able to negotiate on other big ticket items, right? Like legislative redistricting to some extent was kind of off the table because that could still go to the legislative redistricting board. But at least on the congressional side of things, there was somewhat of an opening to be able to include that in any of the like wheeling and dealing and big deal brokering that could have happened now with that having to happen in a special session under this plan that still has to be approved that's basically out the window i mean that basically takes that kind of hammer away from them or that factor at least in in some of that deal making
3: the the problem for this is that there are so many deadlines and outcomes for each deadline you know redistricting is always you know up to your elbows deep in litigation and this just gives another track for litigation when you bring the legislature in a little bit late. They're going to have to do congressional pretty quickly because they're adding, you know, up to three seats because our population has grown faster than other places. So you've mm-hmm. got to redraw those seats, uh, and then you've got to, you know, come in and say, you know, under one person one vote. You know, if your district has too few people and mine has too many, somebody's getting cheated out of their vote. There's so many grounds on a voter basis before you even get to the legislature to make this go quickly that if. If the census comes in late, then I think you're going to have to have a special session, certainly on congressional, and probably on legislative.
1: Yeah, I mean, I talked to Phil King, the chairman of the House Redistricting Committee, for now, um, and and he said, you know, that he he pretty clearly stated that he would be opposed to this delay. That he was hoping that members of Congress that represent Texas would also come out in opposition and and put some pressure there to see if we can actually prevent this delay and have kind of redistricting go happen under normal circumstances. So I think it'll be interesting to see which members or even the governor kind of, you know, participate in that public campaign to push back on this. But I think, you know, the, the other thing that comes up is if we do end up doing legislative redistricting in a special session, you know, there's questions about constitutional requirements. Do we have to come back in 2023 and still vote on the, you know, basically affirm those maps to meet that constitutional requirement? And then, of course, you know, like once you're opening up that can of worms, it's like, oh, what corrections can we make here or there, particularly after an election that maybe didn't work out the way people wanted to? And it just seems like, the uncertainty that we are facing now going into twenty one could actually and probably very likely will expand beyond 2021.
3: Aren't the lawsuits that came from the 2010 census and the redistricting that followed that, aren't those lawsuits still open?
1: I mean, Technically, there's still one fight over attorney's fees, I believe, that has not been resolved.
3: Right.
4: So, so
1: that's what we're looking ahead it's to. It's a
3: perpetual motion machine. It's a never-ending story. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we are just about out of time. As always, thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to Raise Your Hand, Texas, Texas A&M University System, the Texas State Technical College, and the Texas Farm Bureau, are sponsors this week. On behalf of Cassie, Matthew and His Closet, Ross, and our producer, <laughs> Ray and Regina, this is Alexa. Thanks for listening.